Man, what a fun morning. Seriously. First service, they came in pretty much asleep. And uh, when we hit that song, it's like everything changed. It was so fun. And uh, man, if I could dance like you, Kimberly, I'd be dancing, you know, because I was loving that that much. I just thought, if I, if I jump in that, if I go, if I like full send it, then I'm going to be on everyone's like post, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm not ready for that. So, um, hey, welcome to Salt Church. I have the opportunity to talk to you about something that's not so popular in our culture, and it's the idea of honoring people. And to me, as I thought about honor more and more this week, it seems like there is less and less attention given to like creative ways that we can show honor. And I know the ways people change ways people show honor change over time. Like there was a time before my day when a woman entered the room, all the men in the room would show honor to her by doing the same thing all in unison. You know what they would do? All the men would stand. Just a way to show, hey, there's a, there's a woman in our presence. Let's honor her. Or like any door, not just a car door, but like any door. Oh, there, there's a gal moving towards the door. Like, I got that. I, how can I serve you? And it's all but lost. And I get it. Some of these things are cultural and time-bound. So I was thinking about my mom and my dad. My dad, like, I could not speak about my mom with pronouns like she or her. <laughs> you just didn't do that. It was always Mom. You didn't get this one wrong. And honestly, if I didn't show honor to my mom or even by extension like a coach or a teacher, I just don't know that I even want to finish the sentence. It did not go well, you know, for me at, at home. I learned to not just like obey when dad said to do something. Like that like went without, you just did it. But you also, it was super important that you did what you were told to do like right when he said to do it, but you did it. And you said, you looked in his eyes, this was big, and you said, yes, sir. And maybe that was like military family, I get it. There's some of these things that are cultural. But that communicated honor to him. And, you know, even elderly, I think, perhaps in a yesteryear, were a little bit more honored. As a college student, I worked in food service. So, I mean, I worked a lot of jobs in college. But, like, one of them was in food service. And I worked with a bunch of elderly ladies, like, they were, like, in the back, and they're, like, you know, stirring it up, you know, and, like, getting it done. And they're just, they had these great friendships, and they talked about kids and grandkids. And here they are, probably not, like, broke, but, like, just, like, still loving people that were probably the age of their grandkids, like, just back there, being so sweet. So I was like, kind of, like, part of this little group. I remember being out front once, and I think, I don't know if I was the guy, like, swiping the cards or whatever, but, like, here is their food coming on out. And I remember a student comes through the line. And, and he saw the food that these women were doing their best to serve. And so, spaghetti, like again, this food sucks. And I thought, with, this, with these people here, I'm like, who served you, who were up long before you woke up to provide you food, I bet you're not even paying for. I bet your parents are footing your bill. If my dad had heard that, he would still be doing time in prison for what he would have done to you. Like, just honor, honor. Students, how are you doing with honor as a student towards teachers? And there's no perfect teachers, right? I was asking my daughter, because one of them had said something about this, and I tracked it down. It was Claire. And I said, didn't they do something with group me? Like, get this. Claire, and I got a quote from her. You know, she says, Dad, yeah, a lot of my classes, they all have group me chats. Group me, by the way, if you don't have that app on your phone, just a, like, 
everyone you want in the group always seeing the same messages. And Claire said, oh yeah, they do this. And everyone jumps in. Well, everyone's invited into the group meet chat except for the teacher. Oh, very purposely, they're left out. This is what Claire said. She goes, they use these things just to vent their frustration to everyone in the class. I have tons of classes that routinely roast the professor for their lack of confidence and the assignments given. It terrifies me to know that this will soon be me if I go down a career path as a teacher. I'm thinking, not my Claire. Oh, yeah, you know, like even my Claire. Um, guys, here's what I'm saying. All this is going on behind the professor's back. And I asked Claire, I said, Claire, send me like a screenshot, something I can show on the screen of just like one of these like roasts. And she sent me one. The amount of profanity in the one screenshot she sent me, I'm like, I can't show that. Like I would have parents talk to me about, you put that word up there for my kid. And the reality is she says, Dad, it's probably the cleanest screenshot I could have sent you. Just roast, that other words, disparage, gossip, slander, just all behind the back of the teacher. And I thought, man, I hope like Salt Church doesn't have a group me that I'm like not in on, you know, like Ryan, Paul, elders are out. Unless you've got one that, it, you know, just has Ryan left out. Put me in on that one. That'd be fun. Um, no, no, don't do that. Um, guys, there are different ways to honor people in different generations. I'm not trying to make something awkward, some application. But are we working hard to think creatively about having, how to bring honor to leaders God has put in our life? And today, as specifically as we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, God is going to help us become the church that he wants us to be by showing us how to honor authorities in the church and authorities in the workplace. And then towards the end, he'll give us a motivation for why. So that's where we're going, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And the question is going to be, how do I do that and why should I do it? First, in the workplace, and then, I'm sorry, first in the church, then to the workplace. The elders, this is 1 Timothy 5, 17, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious, cannot remain hidden. Now, shifting towards a work scenario, and I'll explain the masters and slaves when we get there. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. All right, back to honor within the church. I'm gonna go back to chapter five, verse 17. We're gonna leave these slides up on, and I just want you to see Paul's flow of argument, how he builds this. First, he says, the elders, plural, who are good leaders, should be considered worthy of double honor. I wanna first just draw attention to maybe the most obvious thing. The word elder is plural. Elders, elders. It's meant to be 
plural leaders leading the church and never just one pastor. Elders is always God's intention. It is like that throughout the New Testament. Never do you see like, oh, God has given the church one pastor, prophet, CEO, king, who just hears from God and we just follow him. Guys, God's intention, and we've seen already in 1 Timothy what kinds of men these are to be, but they're proven leaders who lead in plurality. Not one of them sits any higher than the other. No, they serve God's people, but they do it together. This is a safeguard for the church. And I throw that out because, honestly, we're in a culture that's like, oh, pastor says, as if there is one. Oh, his name's on a, on a curb somewhere out there. He gets special treatment like he's this. No. Elders were given by God to lead the church. And that's safe for us because, honestly, any one pastor, any one elder could derail the whole thing. And some have been a part of churches where one person was given way too much authority and one person, like any of us, can fall and can take a church down with them. Elders were given to the church, plural. But look at this. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Among elders, there are those who are working very hard and good at leading, and they give a lot of their time to preaching and teaching. And God's word is honestly saying they should be worthy of double honor, not just like double, like way to go, you know, you're doing a great job, but honestly, it relates to financial remuneration. We're going to see that in the illustrations that follow. Let me just stop to like acknowledge the most obvious awkward thing in the, in the room. I'm the guy who is right now preaching the passage, here's how to honor me. Guys, you would think if you're visiting for the first time, oh, I see what you do, you know, <laughs> just pick and choose whatever passage you want, you know, how self-serving is that? Like, you'll have to talk to people around here. And we just keep teaching through the Bible. And this is the section I'm on today, okay? That's where we're at. But guys, God's word is calling us to a place of honor in all ways, but he's going within the church. And obviously this was an issue in the church at Ephesus. And he's saying some should receive double honor, that hard work of preaching and teaching. And he's going to do it by way of an illustration. First, an animal illustration and a person illustration. Here comes the animal illustration. I think this is pretty cool. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, what is ox? Like, what do oxen have to do with, like, pastoring? Here's a picture that I think is really helpful. So, so this picture, uh, here you've got some oxen, like, together, and they're treading out the grain, right? They were bound together. They just keep doing these laps in, in a circle. A good owner of oxen would realize you're going to be in there, like, all day long working. It's hard work. We're going to let you, as you're a little bit hungry, like, reach down and grab a little of the grain. You're not going to eat too much, but you're at least going to be able to keep your strength up. That would be, like, kind a bad manager would literally put a muzzle on their mouth. So even though they were exhausted by their labor, they wouldn't even be able to eat anything. They would just have to keep driving on. Because the point's pretty clear. The one who is working in that should receive some of the benefit. And if it wasn't clear from the illustration, Paul, in another letter to the church in Corinth, writes it this way, and this will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake because, look at this, and the logic is simple. He who plows ought to plow in hope. He who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? 
And then like a human illustration, the worker is worthy of his wages. Like that made sense to everyone there. Oh, someone who works all day at the end, they would kind of line up and they'd get paid for the work they did. Like it's, they're worthy of their wages. Give them what they've earned. Guys, here's what God's saying. You should give in a way that helps support. And I'm telling you, let me just stop to just say thank you. Those of you who like are faithfully a part of Salt Church, like many of you become members, like you give generously, you give regularly. And I'm telling you that part of that is my salary, Orion's salary, I mean, the, the staff salary. And guys, we're only set apart not to do the work of the ministry, but to equip the saints. And hopefully we're getting more and more people in the action. But part of it is thank you that I don't have to work a 50-hour job and then on top of that, stay up endless nights, early mornings, and all the rest, just to try and get ready to teach God's word to you. You've set me and others aside. Thank you for modeling this passage for us. You're doing that. You're honoring us. But interestingly, this passage is going to shift from commendation of good leaders to how to correct them when they go wrong. From like rewarding good leaders for a job well done to rebuking them when they start going down a path of sin. I promise you I will. All of us do, right? At different times, we have blind spots. That's the point. They're blind to us, and we need to be corrected. Now God's word is going to help you to know how to correct even church leaders when they go down a wrong path. First, how not to do it in verse 19. Here we go. Back to the scriptures, 519 says, don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. This is a pattern of the Old Testament and New Testament from Deuteronomy 19 to Matthew 18. You can look at a lot of passages that keep bringing up two or three witnesses. I first studied that and I thought, why do you need two or three? Like if they're a church leader and the implication is that they go down a wrong path, they could lead the whole church after them. Wouldn't it only take like one person seeing one little thing and they should get rebuked? Is listen, Paul is not trying to spare elders of necessary correction. He is trying to rescue them from false accusations. There's a big difference there. And we're not talking about like, you said one thing wrong, bam, I'm blasting you. We're talking about like patterns of behavior where people begin to see it, a group, two or three should go and confront. But if it's just one person just throwing something out, guys, that can be a false accusation that literally, if you've, had, if you've experienced this, I've experienced this, can level you. Some leader, some person in the church blasts you, and no one defends you in that moment. No one vouches for your character. They see one thing, and boom, they hit you, and it can knock the wind out of you for a long time. There is a, a right way of doing this. I have been corrected routinely by multiple people helping me to see I'm telling you, we as your elders are working hard sometimes to go to those awkward places with you of going like, hey, I just need to talk to you about what we see and call you to a place of holiness. Do the same for us. We need you to show us what we don't see also. Your application, honestly, as weird as this is, might be show me where I'm wrong. I guarantee you I'm wrong in some ways, and I don't see them. So how to bring that? Well, it's two or three witnesses. And then look at this. Publicly rebuke those who sin, verse 20, so the rest will be afraid. Now, I don't know if it's like in the whole group gathered, hey, can I have a mic? You know, or come to our elder team, at least bring it there. That might be a better starting place. Um, but publicly rebuke those, those elders who sin. Get this. So the rest will be afraid. The elder team is in view there. The rest will be like, oh, my word. 
it's just like that, right, when you're kids and, like, you're doing something wrong with your brothers or sisters. You know it's wrong, but then one of them gets busted, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't know they were going to take it that seriously, but all of a sudden, they got spanked, or they're in there on their bed. You're like, you know what? I'm going a new path. I'm going to go a new direction. Like, the rest will literally be afraid, like, wow, that we've raised the bar of holiness in this place, and it will affect the whole church better because of it. And again, we're not talking about, like, Dude, you said a mean word once. Bam. It's like patterns of life, right? And guys, some, some, just this whole idea of correction, you're like, nah. You know what? I'll just leave the church. I bet there's another church where they have perfect leaders. <laughs> Good luck. You have to start your own church, and even then you'll be pretty disappointed with the leader because it's you. I'm telling you, <laughs> there's no perfect churches. And the answer isn't just leave. The answer is love enough to bring correction. And guys, I just want to zoom out of correcting church leaders to just something that should be true of all of us. All of us should be actively involved in calling our friends and connection group leaders and people in our connection groups and people in our life, Christ followers, to holiness. And it often takes bold but loving correction. Check out Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 with me. It'll be on the screen. The author writes, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The author of Proverbs is saying something that sounds totally backwards. You know what's better than hidden love? You're like, oh man, I would love to be, oh, someone loves me and I don't even know about it. Wow, it sounds exciting. He's like, no, there's something better. Getting openly corrected. You're like, you're kidding me. That's a joke, right? No, it's best for you. And here's why. Look, wounds from a friend those can be trusted. An enemy multiplies kisses. It's the enemy that comes up, oh, I'll kiss you on both cheeks. Oh, we're friends. We're good. And that culture, you know, everything's fine. We don't ruffle anyone's feathers. He goes, actually, that's what an enemy does. You'll know who your real friends are because they will lovingly wound you with their words. Now, not with sword thrusts, but like a surgeon with a scalpel. Again, not trying to kill, trying to heal. You will know who your friends are, and you'll know whether you really are a friend on whether or not you get in conversations like that. Guys, let me ask this directly. Do you routinely correct people you love over like patterns of sin you see in their life? It takes courage, doesn't it? It's hard. If you're waiting around, oh, I'm not perfect yet, well, then you'll never offer anything corrective, you know? No, none of us are perfect, but do you routinely correct sin in others. And here's another question that's interesting. Are you routinely corrected by your friends, the people in your connection group, in your church, in your friend circle, in your family? And, and let me just say, if you're not corrected often over the sin in your life, please don't come to the conclusion that you have no more sin in your life. That's a bad conclusion. The conclusion you actually need to come to is a sadder conclusion in some respects. You have no good friends in your life. Somehow you either keep yourself so hidden that no one sees sin and you just sort of, ah, I'm never in a group. You never know who I am. Or when you open your life up, they're not just bold enough and loving enough to come through the front door and go, I need to talk to you about this. Because we want a culture, not of fault finders. That's not, what, that's not the church God wants. But that loves each other enough to see holiness cultivated in the body of Christ? Are you that kind of friend 
Let me jump back into how this confrontation affects the whole process of ordaining elders. You know, verse 20 says, publicly rebuke those who sin. We saw that so that the rest will be afraid. But now we're going to see something that is very strong from Paul in verse 21. Verse 21 says, I solemnly charge you. This is Paul talking to his understudy here. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. So, Timothy, I'm charging you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the angels and all that's holy in the world. I mean, it's like, this is pretty loaded. You are calling on like heaven itself to do what, Timothy? To do what I'm saying. You correct false leaders in the church. And you do it without favoritism. Don't be like, well, I mean, that person, I mean, they've been a leader longer than me, and I, they are older than me, and you, you've seen their title. And, but this person, I like to correct them anyway, so of course I'll correct them. And it, he's like, no, 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 no favoritism, none of that. I charge you to be this kind of leader in the church of God. Why do you think Paul used such heavy, loaded, comma, comma kind of phrases when he charged Timothy to do this? tell you what I think. I think Timothy is a lot like me. <laughs> Afraid. Isn't it hard to confront people who honestly might have even been older than Timothy? Maybe been doing it longer than Timothy? Isn't it hard to go to those places for the sake of holiness in the church? I think Paul just knew, dude, you're afraid. I get it. And I'm telling you, God is calling you to call his people to holiness. Because God's word to us is that we would be following suit. I charge you, keep this command. And then verse 22, well, don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. You know, the best way to deal with elders who need to be corrected repeatedly because of sin in their life is not to too quickly appoint them to be an elder in the first place. Like, that'd be the best decision. Don't be too quick to put someone who's unqualified to serve in that role. There's no perfect people, but don't be too quick and don't share in the sins of others. And I think that's what's in view. If you're too quick to do that, you're partially responsible for the problems you brought into the church. Keep yourself pure from that, Timothy. This isn't just like personal purity. Keep yourself pure from those decisions that too quickly put the wrong people in leadership. You gotta see his continued path process of thought. And guys, in our church network of, of churches that are planting churches nationally and trying to do that globally, one of the greatest mistakes a church can do, and any church, but especially of a young church, is to too quickly, when the church is so small, to put in place someone who's not qualified yet to lead in that way. It's just more volatile. Guys, at, at Salt Church, we don't have any perfect leaders. I'm one of the imperfect ones. But guys, in those discussions, we go deep and our pace goes slow. We'd rather just take some time. Well, a final personal challenge to Timothy was, it's kind of in the middle of this, he kind of throws in something real personal here. Don't continue drinking only water, verse 23, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Look, Timothy was like a son to Paul, not exactly, but like spiritually, like a son to him. Paul cares for Timothy, and maybe Timothy had succumbed to some of the ascetic 
practices of the false teachers. If you remember like a couple of weeks ago, some of them were like, oh, you know what, there's things you can't eat. There's things you can't drink. Like some of these false religious rules. Maybe Timothy thought, well, he said don't drink wine, so I'll just keep drinking water. Here's the problem. In that day and age, water was very polluted. And Timothy had like frequent stomach illnesses where just water alone wouldn't help. It was a common practice to mix in some wine or just to drink some wine alongside of water to help you stay healthy. And maybe Timothy was like, well, I can't. I mean, I was told not to. He's like, dude, drink some wine. It would really help your stomach. Like just this personal aside, this loving word from Paul to kind of free him, maybe even from some of the influence of his own um, contemporaries right there. And then he ends with jumping back to this process of, of leaders. Some people's sins are obvious. The sins of future emerging leaders are obvious. Preceding them to judgment, I don't think eternal judgment's in view. I think the judgment that people need to make on whether or not they should be elders in the first place. So some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to that point of judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. I think we're back to the, the idea of putting wrong elders in place. Something about slowing down that process is very helpful. Because some people's sins, you're like, ah, we would never appoint this person as a leader. Or you've seen that, right? In some cultures or in some circles that you run in, whether it's dorms, apartments, professional settings, I mean, you're like, no, we already know that would be a bad leader. But sometimes it's not too obvious at first. It's like, man, they look like a sheep, but maybe that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Maybe, I, oh, it took me a while to see the zipper on the back of that suit, but that's a wolf wearing a sheep's clothing. Like sometimes it just takes a little while to see, oh, wait a second. No, steer clear of that. Again, go deep, go slow. But, you know, I was getting to the end of my notes, and we're about to shift gears into something that feels even more practical. And Ryan, we all comment as elders, like, on the, the notes that are going to be taught, so it's not like one person preaching what they want. It's like, here's our teaching of our elder team. Ryan goes, his, his, one of his comments, so what? <laughs> I'm like, why don't you put you in a group, me, and get you, at, you know, no. He goes, so what? What's the point? We're about to see why. Why honor church leaders, and now we're going to get into why honor civil leaders. Listen to what, listen to what uh, Timothy says. Let me reread those first couple verses. Now we're shifting into like leaders in the work setting. It says, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Now, Paul is going to talk about masters and slaves, and it would be really easy for you to do what I did when I first started reading like this kind of stuff. Be like, masters and slaves, everything about that is evil, because every connection I have is clearly to our country's absolute atrocity with the evil of slavery. I need you to know that it wasn't the same thing as you look at first century Roman and even pre-Roman Gresham life. Let me read a little bit from a commentary that was pretty eye-opening to me. John MacArthur writes this, and this is true, like about a half of the population of like the Roman world was slaves at this time. Okay, John MacArthur wrote this, slavery was an integral social component of the Greco-Roman world in the first century. It was a widespread scheme of employment. In the ancient Near East, much of the seasonal field work and part-time project work was done by hired day laborers. Permanently employed domestic slaves served as managers, cooks, artisans, and teachers, becoming a part of the household almost like family. 
In many respects, they resembled the indentured servants of the American colonial era. They were acquired in several different ways. Again, some of these are like absolutely atrocious. Prisoners of war purchased, sold to pay debts. Listen, the Old Testament never forbade slavery, but carefully guarded the rights of slaves. Jewish slaves could not be held for more than six years unless they voluntarily chose to remain. Slaves who were abused by their masters were to be set free. Their religious rights, such as enjoying the Sabbath rest, were also protected. Slaves also enjoyed civil rights, had economic rights, and guys, Jewish slaves in New Testament times were to be treated as equal to the eldest son in a family. Gentile slaves were not always so well treated, but on the whole were better off than day laborers. And I'll finish with this comment. The system, MacArthur says, was not perfect, but it was workable. Most of the abuses came from the evil hearts of men, not from the institution itself. Such abuses can be found in every system of employment, whether slavery, feudalism, communism, or capitalism. This is zooming out to go, this was what was happening. And Paul in the midst of that isn't trying to turn a whole social revolution over. He goes, there are evils in this to be sure. And there are things that are like, it's like employment. I want us to take this and understand it. Think master slave and think employer employee. I think the principles of honor totally apply to us. God is going to say to them and to us, all who are under the yoke as slaves, again, that's not a negative term actually in the scriptures. Uh, Jesus himself was a, 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 a slave servant, you know. Um, under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. All who are under the yoke of slaves, think of your boss. Think of an employer. Students, I would honestly kind of, I'm extending this a little bit. Now in the season, you're like, ah, I'm out. I don't have a job. I would have you think of your teachers for just a minute. Think of authority figures in your life. Are you regarding them with all respect? Are you regarding them with all respect? What's interesting to me is not so much, well, how should we be towards good authorities? Here's the harder pill to swallow. How do I honor those who are dishonorable? How do I show respect to those who are disrespectful? How do I get to that place? But what you will find in the scriptures is respect and honor has very little to do with how respectful and honorable the leader is in your life and almost everything to do with the condition of your heart. Consider Jesus. There never was an authority that he honored that was honorable. And yet he perfectly honored. There never was a father figure, mother figure, anyone figure in his life that was worthy of his honor. Guys, honor is not an emotion to be experienced. It's a choice to make. And God is calling us to a place of honor. Think about it within your work setting. Regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, but why? What is the motivation for us to honor those who might not be honorable? You could, I think, even work this back to even within the church. How do we rightly honor church leaders? How do we rightly honor and why actually do we honor authority in our life? And I think the answer, and I didn't see it at first, and Ryan, so what question pushed my nose into the text to see in verse two, here's why. Here's why we honor people. So that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. 
Put more positively, when we honor authority in life, God's name more positively is glorified, not blasphemed. His teaching, which includes the gospel, is honored, not blasphemed. How you respond to your parents, students, has everything to do with the glory of God and the honor of his teaching. Whether or not, wife, you roll your eyes when your husband speaks to you has everything to do with the glory of God. How you respond to your teacher in a group me chat by not defending and honoring them has everything to do with the glory of God and the gospel. The glory of God, and there is nothing more ultimate than the glory of God in all of reality is linked to our hearts responding to a world of authority that God has put us all in. Church authority, work authority, I, I would extend it to parents, to family. How are we doing? How do I do it? And specifically, how about the ones that are very hard to honor? Couple references, you can just jot these down, I'm not gonna show them. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it from your heart as something done for the Lord, not for people, knowing you'll receive the reward of inheritance. Guys, here's how I think. When I was a student, I had to do this little mental Jedi mind trick. Turns out it's actually biblical. Here it is. The teacher, whatever your name is, actually your name is Jesus. That's right. Every one of my teachers just became the Lord. And I stopped doing my work like I was doing it for him or her, but like I was turning in my assignments to the Lord trying to now do my best as doing it for him, knowing that he's going to reward that. Who am I working for and how good of a boss are they? Doesn't matter. I'm going to think of them like Jesus. They're the one I'm working for now, and I'll do my work as good as I can for them, and God will reward that. Oh, this leader, that politician that I need to honor. Yep like they were the Lord. It doesn't mean that I agree with everything they say, and it doesn't mean I blindly submit to something, some evil they're calling me to. No, 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 no. But I am saying, honor is a position of the heart, and you see it with all kinds of facial expressions and words. Titus 2 says, slaves are to submit to their masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not talking back, stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness. Look at this so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. Adorn. That's that word, that Greek word, cosmeto. We get cosmetics from it. Think, think of a woman maybe in front of the mirror putting on different makeup, making her face more beautiful. That's sort of the point of the thing. Okay, now back over here. When you work hard to honor authority in your life, you are cosmeto. You are adorning. You are making beautiful the teachings of God. Because you are following Jesus' example. How you respond to authority in the church and at work has everything to do with the gospel. It has everything to do with the glory of God. Look, the big idea is, look, honoring God in the church and at work, it brings glory to God and it causes the gospel to pop. Like my wife uses this phrase and I'm like, pop, what? She's an interior decorator. She's like, oh, you know, it's all one color and all one thing. And the reason I painted that is because it pops. And I'm like, okay. It stands out. It draws attention to something. When you live like that, among an authority figure, 
that isn't even worth honoring, the gospel pops. People see Jesus. Young women, if you want to know how a young man will honor you one day as a potential bride, you don't need a crystal ball. Actually, all you need is his mom's cell phone number. Just call her, and if he has sisters, call them, and say, hey, can you just tell me real quick, um, when, when he comes home, is there more laundry or less? Is there more gas in the tank or less? Is there more dishes or less? Because the best way you're going to know anything about his future is to look back. And you will know something when all the emotions fade, and they do, and 98% of marriage moves forward, you will know a lot about how he will be just based on how he is. You don't need a crystal ball. You just need a couple phone numbers. And then, if you want to know, well, what's she going to be like? Just take a look at how she's doing with her father. Is it because she's got a perfect father? No, there's none of them. I am one more imperfect father. But there is a position of the heart towards leadership that's hard. That says, I'm striving to honor imperfect leaders. You'll know a lot about them. The same is true when it comes to work. If you want to know about how this person's going to do as a boss, read their group me now. How do they relate right now to authority in life? Because the real world isn't about to begin when you graduate. You're in it. The concrete is setting around your feet, and you are setting patterns for life. How are we supposed to do this? Look to Jesus. This is what's beautiful. Jesus Christ, think of it. Except for the, uh, the glory of God and the authority of God in his life, every other authority that told him to do something was broken and messed up. Like, he had jacked up leaders in his life. And you know what? He still honored he still honored messed up religious leaders. He still followed their leadership, even Herod and Pontius Pilate till the end. And how did he do it? Oh, in the power of the Spirit of God. And you and I, as we look to Jesus, who followed and honored authority all the way to the end and was exalted to the highest place in heaven, as we look to him and as we do it in the power of his Spirit, we will draw attention to the glory of God and we will put his gospel and his teaching on display. Our world needs to see it. And everything you do this week has that implication. God's glory, his teaching, and the gospel. It all counts. All of life is spiritual. Let me pray for us.